You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, who but Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado. Today is Sunday, June 26, 2022, and today is also episode 417 in which we are going to discuss Oz Guinness's A Free People's Suicide. Now, before we get into that, I would like to add a quick follow-up to two episodes ago. Episode 415, we talked about the state of contemporary Christian music or what passes for contemporary Christian music these days. And I may have said too much about belly buttons and not just belly buttons in general, but specifically Lauren Daigle's belly button in the music video for You Say, which was the number one billboard Christian music track for 2020, according to K-Love. The point I was trying to make, the point I was hoping to make, in as much as I went on about the uh, navel-gazing, shall we say, uh, in more than one way, (laughs) uh, is that we should be very careful about using sex to sell Christian music. That's really what I'm trying to get at. That's really the point that I'm trying to make. I do harbor a concern that such is what's being done in that music video on at least some level, maybe not for Lauren Daigle herself specifically, but I would be very, very surprised if the question did not come up at all when wardrobe and such uh, was being discussed. Hey, what are you going to wear for this music video? It's kind of a big deal. Oh, I don't know. Just whatever. You know, that doesn't happen. There's a lot of money on the table. There's a lot of reputation on the table. These are strategic decisions. And there was a time in this country, not even a century ago, when the flashing of a midriff was enough to bring the censors down on shows like I Dream of Genie. I think actually I Dream of Genie was, back in the 1960s, it was a boundary pusher on TV because before that it had been verboten. Standards had been set because early cinematic history was, uh, shall we say, the Wild West. Actually, there's some interesting history we could get into in a future episode. I should like to, actually, to talk about the history of Hollywood. Why is it Hollywood? Why are so many movies, why is so much TV centered on Hollywood, California? Well, there are reasons. There is a history there that you might be interested to know, I certainly was. But the point being, Barbara Eaton sold that show. People tuned in, men in particular, to watch I Dream of Jeannie because of Barbara Eaton. And more specifically, uh, her having a beautiful face and a beautiful figure and wearing a harem girl outfit. They were selling the show on Barbara Eaton's uh, good looks. And... I mean this as an honest question. I don't mean this to upset anyone, to discourage anyone, to frustrate anyone, to offend anyone. Rather, 
to encourage greater care and consideration about the types of media that we consume and the types of media that we produce. Do we really want to buy and sell Christian music through the same mechanism by which I Dream of Genie, the TV show, uh, was marketed and sold to the American public? I would say no, not when it comes to Christian music anyways. The world is going to be the world, but if we're talking Christian music, I just am not quite not quite sold on that. Call me old-fashioned. My dad's side of the family were Mennonites uh, all the way back, as far as I can tell. At least maybe 500 years, potentially. Swiss Mennonites, specifically. Uh, now, don't get me wrong, either. However, even that notwithstanding, I think it's a fine thing that women are beautiful by God's design, and that some women are very beautiful. It is not for no reason. They are called the fairer sex. And I'm reminded of this anytime I hang out with only other men for an extended period, like if I'm working long hours on a given week with a bunch of ugly, hairy, smelly men, uh, I come to appreciate all the more when I finally get home and, ah, there's my wife. Oh, you are the most beautiful face I have seen all day. And you smell so nice. And boy, howdy, am I thankful for you. <laughs> I remembered this as well. Last week, I had a poker night with some friends. We played poker, first time in a long time, almost three years since I had gotten together with the guys to play poker. And it was fun, but also too, and I'm sure they all would agree uh, with regards to their wives, it was nice to get home to the missus and not be hanging out with men anymore once we were done playing poker for the night. It, it was all right. I did not mind. Uh, also too, though, again, on this point, I've brought this up before. I've done an episode in recent weeks talking about biblical modesty. What should we believe about modesty? What does the Bible say about modesty? What is modesty in a biblical sense for the Christian? I think of the book of Esther in the Old Testament whenever these sorts of conversations crop up. Um, no pun intended. The young Jewish woman named Hadassah, also known as Esther. Hadassah is Esther, but Hadassah was her Hebrew name. She is described in the biblical text as being, and I quote, lovely to look at, end quote. And that does give me pause and make me want to be not prudish with regards to women who are noticeably beautiful, but they are women of God. I believe it would be wrong and wicked for us to suppose that a good gift God has given in women being beautiful is something for us to shame them about or for us to be upset about or angry about, like it's a bad thing. It's not a bad thing that God made women beautiful. But I also think of where in Song of Songs, the admonition is to not awaken love before its time. And very few to none of us seem to know what that means or when that appropriate time is. So where I don't want to be critical, I do definitely want to give a caution. And to be clear, I would issue the same caution if we were talking about a handsome young man who was a Christian recording artist. If it seemed like he was skating by on his good looks, showing up in music videos with his shirt off, and then all of a sudden his tracks are skyrocketing to the number one spot on the billboard charts for Christian music, 
I would be asking the same questions of whether the music is standing on its own merits or whether here too, the record execs are trying to sell music the way the world does. The world is going to be the world, of course, of course, of course. A horse is a horse, of course, of course. But the church is supposed to be the church. So that's all I'm going to say on that. Moving on to the main topic of this episode, I'd like to tell you about a free people's suicide, sustainable freedom, and the American future by Oz Guinness. The summary of this work, published 2014, which I just finished reading yesterday, the summary from goodreads.com reads as follows, quote, if destruction be our lot, we must ourselves be its author and finisher. As a nation of free men, we must live through all time or die by suicide. Abraham Lincoln. Nothing is more daring in the American experiment than the founder's belief that the American Republic could remain free forever. But how was this to be done? And are Americans doing it today? It is not enough for freedom to be won. It must also be sustained. Cultural observer Os Guinness argues that the American experiment in freedom is at risk, summoning historical evidence on how democracies evolve. Guinness shows that contemporary views of freedom, most typically a negative freedom from constraint, are unsustainable because they undermine the conditions necessary for freedom to thrive. He calls us to reconsider the audacity of sustainable freedom and what it would take to restore it. In the end, Guinness writes, the ultimate threat to the American Republic will be Americans. The problem is not wolves at the door, but termites in the floor. The future of the Republic depends on whether Americans will rise to the challenge of living up to America's unfulfilled potential for freedom, both for itself and for the world. And I quote, for those of you unfamiliar with Oz Guinness, his author's summary also from goodreads.com, Reads, Oz Guinness, Doctor of Philosophy, Oxford, is the author or editor of more than 25 books, including The American Hour, Time for Truth, and The Case for Civility. A frequent speaker and prominent social critic, he was the founder of the Trinity Forum and has been a visiting fellow at the Brookings Institution and a guest scholar at the Woodrow Wilson Center for International Studies. He lives near Washington, D.C. Now, I noticed after finishing this book and doing a little bit of research, again, at goodreads.com, my compatriot and friend at both IGV and TRC, Joseph Crampton, wrote a short review of this work back in 2018. And... I definitely agree with one paragraph, especially of his review. I won't read the whole thing for you. It's not my place. But he says, this book is no reactionary tripe. There is both hope and clarity, as well as vision and a call to action. And I would say that is well said. That is well put. Os Guinness is not a reactionary. He is hopeful and he is clear and there is a call to action here, but you don't necessarily get it in the form you might be accustomed to. I think that's the nature of the problem in a nutshell, is that we're always expecting these quick payoff, practical solutions when what might be needed is less practicality, 
per se and more principle. There would actually be a practicality to embracing more principle and making sure that our principles are sound, ironically. But moving on, Oz Guinness makes much of what he calls in this book, the golden triangle of freedom. And the golden triangle of freedom, as he calls it, is comprised of three sides, which are necessary and mutually reinforcing. Take away any one of these and you no longer have a triangle. It will collapse. First of all, Guinness says, freedom requires virtue. If a people does not have virtue, which literally is just courage, they will not remain a free people. A people that lacks virtue will also lose freedom. Also, freedom requires, and I quote his speech at Socrates in the City, a club, I believe, at least emceed, uh, perhaps co-founded by Eric Metaxas in New York City. He says, faith of some sort in the speech that he gave back in 2014, around the same time that he published this book, Freedom Requires Faith of Some Sort. And actually on this point, and of course one could say, faith of some sort is inseparable from virtue, but they are distinct, and that's important to note. Faith, as he says, began to be privatized in the 19th century, and I have much to say on that especially because I found this book useful primarily on this question of virtue being a private matter, character being a private matter versus being a public matter. And then, of course, the third point on the triangle is just liberty, freedom in a vague sense. But you can't take away freedom from virtue or faith of some sort, and I quote, you cannot have freedom really, truly, without virtue and without faith. Alexis de Tocqueville is one who is quoted often in Guinness's work, not for no reason. By the way, I should mention also, I learned something about democracy in America, Tocqueville's landmark classic travel journal, if you will, from 1831. Alexis de Tocqueville was a Frenchman who was somewhat brokenhearted as to what the French Revolution had wrought. And he writes Democracy in America to his countrymen, actually. He didn't write it for us. I mean, we can benefit greatly from its insights, and we should all read it. But Democracy in America is a study of American republicanism the results of the American Revolution in contrast to the results of the French Revolution for Frenchmen, because they could stand to learn a thing or two from us, actually. Fun fact for you. But Alexis de Tocqueville once said, nothing is more wonderful than the art of being free, but nothing is harder to learn how to use than freedom. And that brings me to my next point, something absolutely wonderful, and I would say eye-opening for me, illuminating, in Oz Guinness's work here. Something I had never thought of, but I think is helpful. I think it's helpful for me to think about 
And so I share it with you accordingly because it should be helpful for you as well. Guinness references Augustine, Augustine of Hippo, to make a point about privacy and that which is private having to do with privation and deprivation at a certain point in a free people's suicide. And I had never even paused to consider, it has never occurred to me that privacy and deprivation or private and deprived share the same root word. Now, what do we do with private virtue or private faith? Increasingly in recent years, those who have religious convictions are told to keep them to themselves or else they're told that they are forcing their beliefs on other people, forcing their religion on other people. Now, if you're an entirely secular person, you might think of the month of June as being when you celebrate your sexual identity, your gender identity. Whatever you believe about who you really are or how you were born, who you most truly are, your truest, deepest heart. If you are a godless person in America, the whole month of June has been carved out for you to make a public showing early and often of either your own sexuality or your affirmation of others' sexuality. And the irony is that such is not considered (laughs) private anymore. Now, as we talked about in yesterday's podcast episode about Roe v. Wade potentially being overturned, Clarence Thomas, Supreme Court Justice, is encouraging his compatriots on the highest court in the land to take up some other bad precedents, some other bad rulings the Supreme Court has made in the past half century to a century. And one of these was a ruling which essentially said that adults, consenting adults, are free to do whatever they want sexually within the privacy of their own home. Whatever they do in their own bedroom is none of our business, and the government has no interest in that, as long as they are two consenting adults. The trouble comes where where we're at right now, nearly 20 years later, since that ruling in 2003, is that somehow it's supposed to be all of our business, what you do in the privacy of your own bedroom. And so what used to be, what in times past was considered a very private matter, namely your sex life, could not possibly be any more public. And yet what has in times past, in the best of times past, been considered a matter of grave public interest, that is your religious convictions, your own character, your own virtue, and how that relates to society and your community and your business and your family and the nation, that is now private. And so what is it that we have been deprived of? For one, we've been deprived of virtue and we've been deprived of faith in public life. And so then what we have is we do not have freedom, actually. The libertines thought that they could take from virtue and they could take from faith all of the time and energy that such occupied in public life, and they could replace both and with celebrations of deviant sexual lifestyles and encouraging in the strongest possible terms children as young as five and younger 
to engage in lives of sexual degeneracy because that's what is regarded as authentic self-expression now. That's liberation. But, again, has the American Republic been deprived of the benefits of personal faith and virtue in public life, and does that thereby make freedom unsustainable? That is the subtitle of Oz Guinness's work here. Sustainable freedom and the American future. There's a lot of talk in recent years, in the past 20 years, about sustainability. But it's always about recycling. It's always about renewable energy. It's always about using the power of the sun or the waves or the wind to generate electricity. It's always about carbon neutrality. It's always about getting rid of fossil fuels to make products to fuel our vehicles to electrify our homes. But what about sustainable freedom? I'd like to read for you a quote from Augustine, which I looked up, and I don't believe it was included in Os Guinness's book here, but I think he was referencing this one. If it's not the right quote, it at least captures well enough Augustine's sentiments that Guinness is alluding to. And I quote from Augustine, All of nature, therefore, is good, since the creator of all nature is supremely good. But nature is not supremely and immutably good, as is the creator of it. Thus the good in created things can be diminished and augmented. For good to be diminished is evil. Still, however, much it is diminished. Something must remain of its original nature as long as it exists at all. For no matter what kind or however insignificant a thing may be, the good, which is its nature, cannot be destroyed without the thing itself being destroyed. There is good reason, therefore, to praise an uncorrupted thing, and if it were indeed an incorruptible thing, which could not be destroyed, it would doubtless be all the more worthy of praise. When, however, a thing is corrupted, its corruption is an evil because it is, by just so much, a privation of the good. Where there is no privation of the good, there is no evil. Where there is evil, there is a corresponding diminution of the good. As long, then, as a thing is being corrupted, there is good in it, of which it is being deprived. And in this process, if something of its being remains that cannot be further corrupted, this will then be an incorruptible entity, natura incorruptibilis, and to this great good it will have come through the process of corruption. But even if the corruption is not arrested, it still does not cease having some good of which it cannot be further deprived. If, however, the corruption comes to be total and entire, there is no good left either, because it is no longer an entity at all. Wherefore, corruption cannot consume the good without also consuming the thing itself. Every actual entity, natura, is therefore good. A greater good, if it cannot be corrupted. A lesser good, if it can be. Yet only the foolish and unknowing can deny that it is still good, even when corrupted. Whenever a thing is consumed by corruption, not even 
the corruption remains, for it is nothing in itself, having no subsistent being in which to exist. End quote. Am I sure what to make of all of that? That's heady stuff. But I think we can take Augustine's meaning. And think of it this way, if we're talking about a politician, a corrupt politician, we are not denying that a politician is, in general, a good thing, or at least it should have a good purpose. We have positive expectations based on pre-commitments on the front end, campaign promises, pledges, slogans, oaths. A corrupt politician is one who fails on purpose because of a lack of virtue, not a lack of capacity, not a lack of liberty in the abstract, but a lack of faith and a lack of virtue. And therefore, a corrupt politician is not totally evil, totally corrupted. It's diminished good. And insofar as it is intentionally diminished for selfish gain, there's nothing for that politician, for that whole process that is inseparably linked with the politician, but to remove them, to replace them with a better. We've lost the sobriety and discipline of the founding fathers where our liberty is concerned in both the positive and negative forms of liberty. That much is apparent to me from reading Guinness here. And it's interesting too, because I haven't given much thought to liberty being positive and negative per se. It's an interesting way to put it. But I think this is somewhat like electricity. If you remove one of the leads, either positive or negative, from your battery, for instance, on your vehicle, you will not <laughs> you will not get the benefit of the battery. It really doesn't matter which one you remove. You remove the positive, you remove the negative, you are no longer availing yourself of the battery, nor are you charging it. If your alternator is running and keeping that battery charged as you drive, the battery is not getting the benefit of the alternator. Your car is not getting the benefit of the battery. But what is positive liberty and what is negative liberty? Well, first of all, negative liberty is freedom from. Freedom from. I am free from unreasonable search and seizure. Obama was famous for trying to introduce new negative liberties as a way of pushing for essentially socialism and Marxism. He was a community organizer prior to taking public office, after all. Freedom from want. Boy, that sounds an awful lot like from each according to his ability to each according to his need, doesn't it? Wait, where have I heard that? Oh, that's right. Communism. <laughs> that's right. But there's a sense in which negative liberty is good and necessary. You should be free from some things. And what does Romans 13 say? Governing authority is God-given for a good purpose, to reward those who do good, to punish those who do evil. Punish those who do evil. Why? So that they'll stop doing evil to me and to my wife and to my kids. Now, I recently heard a story about some folks that we know in Montana, who have filed charges, and the local police department is going on six months plus, and they still have not arrested the person against whom charges have been filed. And the offense, the alleged offense, 
is a very serious one. Very serious. And it's a very sad story because I know all the people involved. But six months, we're talking around Christmas time, charges were filed. And the person against whom charges were filed has not either been cleared of all charges or arrested, had a trial date set, nothing. Oh, well, it's Glendive. What do you do? Uh, come on. The governing authority's responsibility is to reward those who do good and to punish those who do evil. Freedom from some things. Our Constitution, for instance, is supposed to restrain the government from oppressing and terrorizing and tyrannizing us. And Guinness thinks, and I will have to give this further thought, but I believe he's right. I I believe he's right that we place far too much emphasis on freedom from certain things. Freedom from restraint, for instance. Freedom from being told that for you to dress up your little boy as a girl, let their hair grow long, give them puberty blockers, subject them to surgery, celebrate them as a girl, is wrong and evil. For me to say that, that is negatively impacting your liberty, as we're told today. No, that's bunk. Bunk. You're abusing your child for selfish gain because you want to be celebrated. Because you think that this is the right side of history. You've been told that and you're an idiot that you think it. This is not the right side of history. This is the collapse of our civilization and we will be replaced by another with more sense because that is the cycle of history for peoples, for nations which rebel against God and become totally corrupt, become wise in their own eyes, and their foolish hearts are darkened. At a certain point, God gives them over to a depraved mind. And that's, I think, an apt description of where we're at. But even libertarians, even conservatives, so-called, place far too much emphasis, as Guinness puts it, and I agree, on our freedom from some things. I should be free from being told to not say certain things. I should be free from unreasonable search and seizure. I should be free from so on and so forth. Free from any infringements on my Second Amendment rights, my First Amendment rights. Well, yes, yes, that's half of it. But again, you unhook the positive lead on your battery and you leave the negative hooked up, you are not getting juice. Positive liberty is your freedom for and to be things. And it might seem like it's belaboring the point to distinguish these, to say they are two separate, equally important sides of the coin, but it is apparently not. Our view of liberty has become corrupted, actually. So this needs to be said. Positive liberty is seldom to never talked about in this country. We have a freedom for something. So, I believe, having been created in the image of the Almighty God, one day having to give an account to Almighty God, I am free for godly living. I am free to be a godly man. That's positive liberty. I am free to love my wife and to love my children. I am free to provide for, to protect, to teach, to encourage, to build up, to enjoy my wife, and my children. That's positive liberty. I am free for encouraging a local body of believers. I am free 
to be a podcaster and to encourage you thereby. Both aspects of liberty are very important. And yet, because in the past century, we have done away with this idea of public virtue and public faith, we have correspondingly deprived our republic of virtue and faith. And therefore, freedom for this republic, in this republic, is unsustainable. That's the big idea. As Edmund Burke put it, all that evil needs to triumph is for good men to do nothing. And the secularist, the atheist, who wants all of society to be atheistic and secular, says, like Pontius Pilate, what is good? Well, I'll tell you what is evil. Your question, insofar as it's not genuine, insofar as you want only negative liberty, but you do not want positive liberty. You do not want to be told that you have any responsibility to God or your fellow man whatsoever. You love yourself and you want everyone else to love themselves as well because that helps you to feel the license that you want to feel. Moving on though, I have a number of quotes that I really appreciated from Os Guinness in this book. Several more I would like to share with you. One from Isaac Newton, who said in a letter, I believe it was, in the 17th century, if I have seen further, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. If I have seen further, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. T.S. Eliot, in response to the claim that we know so much more than our ancestors, once quipped, yes, and they are what we know. I love that, by the way. Love it. They are what we know. German Johann Wolfgang von Goethe once said, he who cannot draw on 3,000 years is living from hand to mouth. I really like that. I really like that. 3,000 years of history. And I was just explaining this to (laughs) our son Enoch. He was asking me if there were Kindles when I was a kid. And I said, no, they hadn't been invented. No, 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 I'm sorry. I'm sorry. He was asking me, that wasn't quite the question. He was asking me if I had a Kindle. That's what it was. I said, no, they hadn't been invented yet. And his eyes got really wide because he wants to save up to buy his own Kindle. He's six. So he's going to collect eggs and feed and water chickens. Lauren will give him some other chores as well. But his eyes got wide. He asked me too if a dollar was enough to get a Kindle. I said, uh, not one that works. He's like, okay, how about $2? <laughs> but I also explained to him, I said, you know, when I was a kid, we didn't have smartphones or Kindles. Definitely did not have TVs like we do now to where you can stream things over the internet. I don't even remember us having the internet for that matter. When your grandpa was a kid, he remembers them getting a TV because his own parents had not had a TV at least if I recall. It's only been in the past century that we have had these major breakthroughs in radio, TV, computers, telephony, and now my six-year-old wants a Kindle. But I told him, I said, for thousands of years of human history, kids your age have had no TV, no computer, no Kindle. He's like, well, what did they do? (laughs) I said, well, they read books in the past 500 years when books became economical for the common people to own, cheap to print, quick to print, 
mass produce, sell. Before that, people would go and they would see plays or they would go to church or they would paint or they would just tell stories. Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, he who cannot draw on 3,000 years is living from hand to mouth. And that's, that's accurate. Another quote, I didn't write down who had said this, but I did write down the quote. A people with no recollection of its past is like a mature man with no memory of his youth. Also to this one by Churchill, the longer you can look back, the further you can see forward. I have just decided today to purchase Polybius, the histories. Polybius is an ancient Greek historian, and I take it on good authority from Os Guinness that the framers of our constitution were familiar with Polybius and Cicero. I've read a biography of Cicero. I should like to read some of his actual works. I am fascinated by Cicero, what I have read. But Polybius as well. If they were reading Polybius and Cicero, I want to read Polybius and Cicero. You want to read Polybius and Cicero. The Histories is rather long compared with other books I've been reading recently. Nearly 40 hours on audio, but it'll be worth it. I don't doubt it. Because we need to draw on 3,000 years so that we are not living hand to mouth. I'll say too, I would encourage you, if you've never heard of a certain painter by the name of Thomas Coleman, check out his series of five paintings, The Course of Empire. He painted them between 1833 and 1836. The five paintings are titled... The savage state, the Arcadian or pastoral state, the consummation, destruction, and desolation. Those are the five stages in the course of empire. And they are also now my desktop background on my computer. I've got it set up to where all three of my monitors will just cycle through these five paintings. I got them downloaded off of Wikipedia. There's a great Wikipedia article under the course of empire paintings in parentheses. Very, very fascinating, in my opinion. But we should, we should be students of Polybius and Cicero, the way that the founders of this country were, to get perspective. And we should give deep thought to the relationship between freedom, which is a good thing. It is a Christian virtue to love freedom. But we cannot have freedom without Christian virtue, more holistically. And we cannot have Christian virtue without Christian faith. We need all three. If we see a revival of those three things, then God will renew us. Kind of like when you were a kid and you would check out a book from the library. And here's your due date. It's got to be back in two weeks or a month. And you get down to the wire. Hey, it's coming due. I've only got two days left. I've only got a week left. I'm not going to be done in time. And what did you do? You renewed the book so that you could finish it. We want our country to be renewed. Kind of like that. Or else we'll be fined. <laughs> to put it mildly. Or if you want to see uh, a picture of the full life cycle of the course of empire, you could check out Thomas Coleman's the course of empire. 
Now, real brief, real, real brief. This will be the last thing. A minor, but maybe not so minor, point of disagreement I have with Oz Guinness. As illustrious as he is, as respectable and respected as he is, he gives credence in his speech to Socrates in the city about this book to the idea that the Founding Fathers held reprehensible views on women and slavery. And therefore, hey, you know what? We can dismiss some of what they believed, but we should not dismiss their more important ideas. And it just doesn't, it doesn't quite work like that. I think we have to be a little bit more nuanced, actually a lot more nuanced, because the tendency in this day is to dismiss them wholesale because we have Marxists who want an excuse to shake the etch-a-sketch. They want to enact that fourth panel in the course of empire to rape and burn and plunder and destroy the whole of this country so they can remake it in their own image. Preferable to that would be embracing the views that the founding fathers had wholesale. And of course, we don't have to embrace wholesale or else dismiss them entirely. I think that they had far too pragmatic a view on slavery, for instance, and yet we see the exact same kind of thinking. The hypocrites in our day, floor me, the exact same kind of rationalizations are brought to the question of abortion and the abolition of abortion. And our descendants in hundreds of years will look back on us if they can remember us, if there is any trace of us left by their day. They will look back on us the same way we are looking back two centuries at the framers who did not enshrine equal protection for black Americans as for whites in the Constitution, in the Bill of Rights, in our form of government from the outset, slaveholders be damned. Only that was relatively light in comparison to outright murdering unborn children in their mother's wombs. I should rather be born and live a slave than never even see the light of day, I think. There's no choice at all. There's no liberty at all in the so-called pro-choice movement. And one quick thought too, these supposedly reprehensible views on women, which the founding fathers had, I wonder if two centuries hence, our descendants will say the same about us. It is supposed with the overturning of Roe v. Wade that women, mothers, only need grace and forgiveness, but they should not be held accountable to the laws of this country if they seek to murder their unborn children. That has been the official position of the establishment Republicans and the pro-life leadership, which gets all the airtime for a long time, that the mother should not be punished for getting an abortion or attempting to get an abortion. How? How? If you ask me, that's a reprehensible view. That's a reprehensible idea about women. So with respect to Oz Guinness, I am not so sure that the Founding Fathers had such reprehensible ideas about women, at least. Slavery, I think they needed more courage to be consistent. They should have abolished slavery from the get-go. I am not denying the pragmatic concerns which kept them from doing it, and yet I would call a hypocrite anyone who would say that those kinds of pragmatic arguments are acceptable now with the issue of abortion, and yet we are living in this glass house and throwing stones at the framers of our constitution, the founding fathers generation, the generation that 
fought and bled and died and won the war for independence. Hypocrites. If we want a republic to stand, one nation under God, we must, we must have both leads on the battery hooked up, the positive and the negative, positive liberty and negative liberty. And we must rediscover Christian faith and Christian virtue, which is to say, courage. Otherwise, we will be swallowed up. That's all the time I've got for this episode. Check out Oz Guinness's A Free People's Suicide for more information on this. These are just my assorted musings. Random, hopefully not too random, thoughts on the matter. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.